in these kinds of examples, it seems like the similarity is that playfulness involves this uh, taking on or performing kind of costly actions that really are quite unnecessary. This is Science for the People. I'm Carolyn Wilkie, and I'm a science journalist. Today, we're talking about play, a topic that touches on one of my favorite areas to write about, animal behavior. I love learning about what drives the actions of animals and humans, and play is particularly fascinating. When creatures play, they put effort into actions that may not seem to serve a purpose at the time. That could be otters juggling rocks, or birds maneuvering sticks, or people running about and chasing each other when they're playing tag. My guests today come at the world of play and games from very different perspectives. First, I'm chatting with cognitive scientist Jinyi Chu. She's a graduate student at MIT, and she studies play and development in children. She recently wrote an article for the Annual Review of Developmental Psychology on Play, Cognition, and Curiosity. We'll link to her article in the show notes. She'll share about ways that scientists study play and what research has told us about reasons behind it. I particularly enjoyed hearing about insights and some surprises from her research on play in children. And after that, we'll hear from game designer, curator, and writer Holly Gramazio. She'll share from her experience in the world of games, spanning those of the virtual world to others that can help you experience places in new ways. And Holly also shared some fun stories of how people have been using play to connect during the pandemic. Now here's my chat with Junyi Chu. Thanks so much for talking with me, Junyi. Yeah, thank you for having me here. How do you think about play as a scientist? Sort of like what what are some of the characteristics of play? Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess one thing to note is that there's many different kinds of scientists. So I am a developmental psychologist. I like to look at how uh, kids sort of learn, behave and think and how that changes with age. Uh, But there's also scientists such as anthropologists and ethologists, uh, even computer scientists, and they're all also very interested in play. And so all of us might take a slightly different lens to look at uh, play behavior. Um, But in general, there are some common themes. So uh, in this article that we just wrote, we sort of list out five common themes. Uh, One of them is play for pleasure. We've got play for performance, play for peacemaking, uh, and then also play for practice and for making predictions and plans. And I can go over them very briefly. Uh, The first one, play for pleasure, is this idea that animals and humans play because it's fun. It's just really enjoyable uh, for all kinds of various reasons. There's actually no real function to play. Uh, Maybe you know, just as several other kinds of behaviors might have evolved because they have some other evolutionary benefit, uh, you know, you see kind of dolphins blowing bubbles, uh, not because blowing bubbles can help them do any real thing, but it's just sort of fun and kind of enjoyable. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, some kind of squishy fruit that might be enjoyable to touch. And so maybe that's why children like to play with slime. Uh, so this is pleasurable account. Um, the other On the other hand, though, a lot of people do want to believe that play is useful. And so we started looking at that. And so the play for performance account suggests that uh, play is actually pretty costly, right? You have to take time out of everything else you could be doing to go do an activity that doesn't seem to have a real practical purpose. And so um, if it costs time, if it costs energy, uh, if it might even be risky, you know, if you're snowboarding, that can be very risky, but also very fun. Um, Animals also jump around in trees sometimes, and and that can be risky to their own life. Um, And so perhaps you can show off that you've got a lot of resources and time and energy, or that you're very skillful in certain things. And and that is sort of the, the purpose of play. Oh, so Um, by resources, you mean um, like you have a lot of energy or you're very fit or something like that? 
Exactly. Yeah. It can be a signal of a one's fitness. Um, the sort of third category, uh, play for peacemaking, suggests that um, beyond sort of some of these physical sig- signals of fitness, uh, p- uh, play can actually help you to uh, become more fit in sort of a social way. So uh, animals who are often in packs or herds can, you know, through play, uh, learn more about other animals, you know, perhaps evaluating their strengths or establish certain hierarchical relationships. Um, And if you have those hierarchies, you can avoid fights with sort of stronger animals. um, And you can just develop this group cohesion. And uh, in humans as well, um, you might see some of this evidence. When you play with somebody, you're getting to know them, you're building up this relationship with them, perhaps. So those are sort of some uh, themes that uh, scientists who study animals have uh, highlighted in their research about animal play. Um, But then there's also two other accounts that focus a bit more on the cognitive side. So, uh, you know, how does play actually support learning? Um, So one account, play for practice, is, well, the kinds of things that kids do when they're playing actually look a lot like the kinds of things they might need to do in adulthood. Right. Uh, So you see a lot of children across cultures kind of uh, practicing certain adult like skills, whether it's um, skills you might use in the kitchen or skills you might use with caregiving, et cetera. Um, And you also see this in animals. So, for instance, uh, whether um, crows are playing with sticks uh, or maybe otters are playing with rocks or maybe when you see kittens pouncing on strings those could all be ways to practice certain motor skills that might be useful in adulthood um, and finally the last sort of category of ideas about play is play for making predictions and plants so when you're playing uh, not only are you Uh, physically enacting some of these uh, motor skills, you're also generating plans about how to do the next step. Uh, You're also making predictions about what might happen and trying to respond to it. And so some of these cognitive skills might also be practiced during play. So those are sort of five big uh, ideas about why play is useful. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. There are so many different commonalities across different kinds of creatures and between animals and humans as well. Um, But your play focuses on studying children. Do you mind telling me a bit about your work and what sort of questions you're asking? Sure, yeah. So the first question that got us started on this track is to ask how similar or different is play from uh, actual learning. So there's this uh, long-standing idea that play is helpful for learning, but we don't really know why. So, and on the other hand, uh, researchers uh, recently have developed really good sort of computationally precise theories about uh, what learning looks like. Um, and so this is the idea that uh, kids might be exploring the world just as scientists explore the world. So one thing that scientists might do is they make observations about the world. And if they see something surprising, they will look more closely and try to learn about it. And that's actually something that children do as well. They pay attention to novel things or surprising things or just sort of any event in the world that um, might have a bit of uncertainty around them. Those are the kinds of events that might spark curiosity. So um 
The other thing that scientists might do is they integrate sort of beliefs about the world, their theories, with any new evidence that collect that they collect about the world. Um, and they integrate sort of the background knowledge with the new evidence to come up with a better theory about how the world works. And that's actually something that children do as well, very naturally, even in infancy. Uh, if you show them new evidence about a toy or, you know, you demonstrate a new way that it might work, they will try to integrate that with whatever they previously know to come up with a new way to sort of interact with this toy. Um, and so there, there's a lot of research into how children might be like little scientists when they engage with the world and try to learn about it. And so we got really curious that if we actually let Kit loose and really let them play, will they really behave like little scientists and sort of explore the world in this really directed way? Or might they do something different? So uh, we designed this study uh, in which we showed kids the same task and we either said, you know, go play and try to get something or we said, try to get something because we really need it. Um, and just to make it a more concrete example, for instance, uh, we set up a room where we had a box of stickers in the center of the room. So that's really attractive for preschoolers. Um, but also in the room, we had a little carpet that had a lot of little colorful dots all around it. And so in one condition, we asked children, hey, there's stickers in that box. Why don't you go and get some? And, you know, if you get it, you can keep it. Uh, and when kids heard this, they would usually just run straight for the box of stickers, open it, get the stickers and run back out. And that's sort of how they interacted in this room. Um, in the other condition, however, we told kids, hey, we need to talk to your parents for a little while. Why don't you go play in this room? And there's a box of stickers and you can try to get them. So they were given the same goal of getting stickers. But in this case, almost all the children kind of looked at the room, looked at the stickers, uh, and they decided to do something else. They would, you know, tiptoe around the room. They would jump on the little stick, uh, the little dots on the carpet. Uh, they would walk in a spiral around the sticker box um, and kind of just take a long time to get to it. We've even got kids who sort of walked to the sticker box, looked at it for a while, and then looked around and decided to kind of uh, playfully uh, walk around on this carpet before they got to the sticker box. Um, and so that's that's one finding that we had. And we have uh, some several other situations where, you know, we might put some pencils in the room, some in a cup that's just on top of a desk. And we also put some pencils hanging off the wall. And if you ask kids to, hey, go get a pencil, I need it to, you know, fill out this form, they might just head for the easiest pencil and, and pass it to you. But if you say, hey, uh, I need to fill out a form and I'm going to just take a minute. Why don't you go play in this room and you can try to get a pencil? So again, the same instructions, but with a playful context. Uh, and in that case, children would, you know, they would see the pencils in the cup that was very easy to reach for. But they would then, you know, look at the pencils on the wall and try to jump for something and try to reach for it and, and sort of spend these uh, very costly actions to to obtain something when they could have easily done something else that didn't uh, require so much effort. So I guess overall, the finding that we've been observing is that in play, children seem to adopt these arbitrary costs. You know, they're arbitrary because they're not necessary for achieving your goal. Um, and they seem to have a lot of fun while doing it. So they don't treat these costs as costly in themselves. They kind of enjoy doing so. And so we started to ask uh, why, why that is the case. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think um, 
it sounds like that's something that's pretty common across different kinds of animals that when you're playing, you do things that otherwise wouldn't really make sense or aren't necessarily the logical thing to do. Were there any surprises in what you saw with the kids? Yeah, so um, I guess this is more of an outtake where we we had uh, two siblings and they were in the room at the same time. Uh, so this was the room with the circle box. And so uh, after they had finished the experiment, you know, they still wanted to play. We were done with the experiment and they still wanted to come back to the room and play. And the siblings started talking to each other and, you know, I think sort of challenging each other almost about like, hey, what else could you do before you got to the box of stickers? And at some point, the older sibling did a cartwheel. And I was totally surprised by that because you don't always see that. Um, and and they did a cartwheel and they did it again and again. And they just never got to the box of stickers that was laying there. So it sort of became an end to itself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And this is another interesting feature about play is sort of this uh, focus on the process over the end goal. Um, you know, and also this uh being okay with whatever the outcome is. The outcome is a bit less important than how you're actually pursuing it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, And I'm curious what some of the other questions researchers are asking about um, children and play. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there are some questions around sort of developmental changes, for instance. How is play different from when you're an infant to when you're in preschool and maybe even older on? Um, and there's other questions around perhaps play in a more linguistic sense. So we've been talking a little bit about physical play, where you're in a room and you're interacting with different objects and this exploratory play. But you could also imagine playing with language and playing with words, you know, maybe exploiting some of the ambiguous to make a joke or try to be funny. And that's a different kind of playful behavior as well. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, And while your work focuses on kids, I'm also curious about adults in play. Um, So for instance, thinking about games or other ways, um, do you have any thoughts on on what play does for adults? Yeah, we haven't uh, directly studied this, but I've been sort of coming up with some speculations and hypotheses recently. And one thing that play is really good at is it's very motivating. Um, play is often kind of driven by intrinsic motivations rather than, you know, uh, rather than work, for instance. So you might contrast play and work and you might be doing the same activity, but you might feel very differently in those processes. Um And we often leverage this sort of gamification with children to make the experimental experience more fun for them. And I imagine that that might be the case uh, in adults, too. Um, You know, thinking about how play could be leveraged to motivate people to do different kinds of behaviors or to encourage them to persist longer or to spend more effort, uh, even though something might be difficult, they might be more motivated to overcome challenges in those cases. Um, One thing that might be different, though, for children and adults in play is that uh, they have different physical abilities. They have different sort of levels of motor control. Uh, They might also have different knowledge about the world and different abilities in, say, memory or um, how fast they can solve a problem. And so I think the specific behaviors that children and adults might engage in in play could be different. But I'm kind of hopeful that there might be an overarching explanation as to, you know, what happens during play that adults and children uh, might share. Um, So 
there's one experiment we've been starting is to look at the more creative aspect of play um, in which uh, we present a task to both children and adults. And there are some pretty obvious things you can do. So there's, it's just a grid of buttons and you can kind of press the buttons to see what happens. Um, But we are starting to see that if you ask kids to play, they actually start creating patterns on this grid of buttons. Uh, Adults also do so. And we're looking at possible differences in terms of what they create or how many different things they create. You know, is it that adults are more creative because they have more knowledge of the world? Or is it that children might be more creative because they just try a wider variety of actions? So those are some differences that we're starting to look into. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, Do you mind saying more about play and the possible connections with creativity? Sure. Um, So in play, one other key feature of play is that it's very variable. Um, We do a lot of very different behaviors in play that we may not do outside of play. Um, One way that you might assess sort of um, create Activity is to ask how good children and adults are at inventing solutions for a novel problem. So for instance, you might uh, see how well they are at inventing tools to solve a new problem um, or just coming up with you know, creative uh, and a wide number of possible ideas. And one hypothesis is, and I don't know if it's true yet, is that maybe in play, you're a bit more loose. So you're a bit more exploratory. You're a bit more willing to engage with the unknown. Uh, you're a bit less committed to you know, things that might definitely work, and you're a bit more willing to try new things out. And so that's one hypothesis for why play might foster creativity in both adults and children. Um, and you can see this a little bit in pretend play. So when when children are engaged in pretend play, it's almost like anything goes, right? A banana can be a phone. It can be um, it can really be anything that you want it to. And we sort of uh, let go of some of the standard rules of you know what things are and how they might behave and how we might interact with them. Um, and perhaps you could bring this to adults in thinking about, you know, brainstorming activities where we're really playing with ideas. Uh, what are some of the features of children's play that we can foster in these settings to encourage adults to be more creative as well? Um, so I don't yet know of any research on this, but I think that's a promising idea to, to look at. If we better understood play, there, there might be some real benefits for adults as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I'm curious to see what you learn. So let's talk a little bit more about play in animals. Um, Do you mind sharing more about what the research has found about why animals play? Sure thing. Yeah. So, uh, and again, this is uh, a a large field of work. And so uh, I'm going to just talk about one particular example that I really like. And this is from Vivian and Sergio Pellis. And they've got this calibration theory of play. So the idea is that when you engage in play, it helps you to develop a you know wide and flexible repertoire of behaviors uh, that may be useful for helping animals to adapt to different environments and different situations. And you know one hypothesis is that play, because it's sort of a safe situation to try out new behaviors, uh, can give animals a sort of sandbox to explore and maybe develop different abilities. And maybe also help them to develop uh, a way to respond to those uh, novel situations. 
Um, and this might happen in both sort of the physical and motor domains, but also in the social domains and perhaps even emotional ways. Uh, so one story that they write about um, in, I think the book is called The Playful Brain, is this idea that they, they watched some monkeys sort of just swing around trees, right? And they're really just playing and swinging around different trees and trying out, you know, how far they could swing or, you know, just, just how uh, far they could jump, etc., and they were watching these monkeys uh, practice, you know, lending, catching a branch, jumping off trees, uh, jumping high, jumping low, all kinds of different activities. And so you could imagine that these monkeys were really practicing their motor skills here. Um, and they might also be practicing their social skills, you know, waiting in line or maybe just interacting with other ones. Um, but uh, a, new, a different aspect of this that we haven't touched on is sort of the emotional calibration aspect, because sometimes you don't succeed. Sometimes these monkeys would fall. Uh, they wouldn't catch a branch and they would fall on the ground. And you can imagine that that could be a really stressful situation. It might hurt. Um, and so play might also help animals to prepare their emotional responses to stressful situations so that in the future, if they were to encounter novel situations, they might be better prepared to respond to it. But then the researchers actually made one more interesting observation, which is that when these monkeys were landing, they weren't preparing themselves to land in the safest way possible. And it wasn't because they didn't know how. These monkeys clearly knew how to jump and how to land. Uh, instead, these monkeys would sort of swing as far as they could and then just open their arms and limbs wide open and kind of land spread eagle on the ground. Oh, wow. So the entire, yeah, the entire opposite of practicing a safe landing. Um, and you might imagine that, you know, if a child or a monkey got hurt, they might start crying or they might be very distressed. But that wasn't what these researchers found. They found that these monkeys were really enjoying this behavior. They would do it again and again. Um, and, you might see children doing similar uh, activities at the playground. You know, they might swing really far or they might go down uh, a slide really fast and it might be just a little bit too much or just a little bit of a hard landing than expected, but they might repeat this behavior. And so the researchers were asking, you know, why would this be enjoyable, right? Why would, be, why would it be enjoyable to try something just a little bit too difficult for oneself? Uh, why is it good to sort of experience these things? These monkeys, um, in addition to sort of repeating this a little bit dangerous and risky behaviors, they then actually started to add some other elements to these jumps. So for instance, they would um, arch their backs a little bit more, which again has nothing to do with successfully landing or, or catching the next branch. Um, and they would just sort of slowly increase the variability in these behaviors, which gradually made the task even more and more difficult, right? Um, and I think the researchers talked a bit about uh, some similar cases in other kinds of animals. And all of this, you know, led them to re recognize there's this sheer joy in being able to do something. No matter whether you succeed, no matter how difficult it is, it's just joyful to be able to do something just because you want to do it, right? Um, and so after reading kind of that book, uh, one of the ideas that we've been toying with here is that in human children, it might be intrinsically rewarding to just try out new things uh, for the sheer sake that you are able to choose them for yourself, right? So in play, um, 
it's a setting in which children may not have to listen to adults about how to play. They get to just make decisions for themselves and make their own choices. And that could be sort of intrinsically rewarding in itself. Um, this ability to uh, learn about your own competence, this, abil- this ability of... Um, or this feeling of uh, feeling empowered to make your own choices could also be kind of a central part of play as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm curious how um, researchers would go about trying to learn more about that. Yeah, so one sort of novel development is um, actually happening in computer science um, when uh, in the fields that study, for instance, robotics. So, uh, Developing a robot that is very flexible to the environment and can perform tasks in a wide array of situations and respond to changes in the environment is actually amazingly difficult. Uh, Most robots that are currently used commercially uh, are often developed for one singular purpose, right? And they can get really good at that and be very efficient at that. But to get a robot that can sort of respond to, you know, all kinds of changes in the environment, that's a lot harder to do because we can't quite literally program the whole uh, environment into the robot ahead of time. Um, And so one idea that computer scientists have been doing is to write programs or uh, write write programs for robots that can play. Um, And what this means is uh, they develop robots or artificial intelligence agents that are really curious. So for instance, uh, instead of just trying to do one task in the fastest, most efficient way possible. These are uh, robots that are really interested in things that they might not understand yet. So they might purposefully seek out uh, uncertainties in the environment. You know, what's behind that door? I don't know what's there, so let me go try it out. What do I do if I press this button? What do I do if I, you know, turn in this specific way, for instance? And so uh, what they're starting to find is that um, the robots that are sort of trained to be a little bit more playful seem to be a little bit more flexible and good at performing the tasks that they are later tested on. And uh, one really fun example of this is um, soccer playing robots. So there's these robots that are uh, built to play a game of soccer. And soccer is very hard to learn to play for a robot or even for, for a young child. Uh, the ball might just you know bounce in all kinds of directions and you have to really you know be good at predicting the trajectory of these different objects and, and try to intercept it before you know another soccer player comes in. So it's a very difficult task. Um, And what these uh, researchers did was they trained the robots on children's paths. So they they observed how children would explore a room. You know, do they walk in straight lines or do they sort of go in circles or do they go in random belts of motion or are they very goal-directed? And so uh, they compared whether robots who learned to walk and run um, in straight geometric lines or robots who learned to walk and run by observing how children learn to walk and run, which turns out to be very messy. They asked, you know, which group of robots uh, ends up being better at playing soccer. And it turns out that the robots who were trained on the messier paths of young children uh, were actually a lot better at the soccer game. Um, so that's, I think, a very interesting and cross-disciplinary approach to sort of uh, trying to answer the question of um, why is why is play or explore 
participatory play really beneficial. And it turns out that this variability that exists in play can really help us, you know, be prepared for novel situations. Sure, that kind of makes sense. So by looking at these widely different ways that children are moving about the room, robots actually can, I don't know, maybe get get a better sense of the different paths they could take when actually playing the game or when doing something that has a goal. Yeah, exactly. So what appears to have no real purpose or goal uh, can actually be useful for later situations because of the skills that were developed. That's a really fun example. I really like that one. Um, I also want to ask something that came up when I was reading your paper was that there is a relationship between the types of animals that play um, and and intelligence. Do you mind sharing about that a bit? What, what was the what was the finding that you were thinking about? Um, just the animals that are thought to be more intelligent, such as um, let's see, dolphins and primates. Mm -hmm. tend to play, um, but we don't necessarily see that behavior in other animals. But like, how would you know if an ant played like, (laughs) you know? Yeah, exactly. I think think we often have a tendency to even, I mean, there's one thing is that there's a tendency to sometimes anthropomorphize a little bit um, and sort of uh, think about play in the context of human play and then applied it to animals. And so if we see, you know, a monkey jumping around, we're like, okay, you know, we've seen kids jumping around, maybe that's playful. Or um, if we see an otter playing with rocks, that can look really playful to us because, you know, we ourselves have seen humans, you know, play with objects in, in that similar way. But um, I think because play is, is this very unpredictable and highly variable activity, we might be missing play in certain animals just because we haven't looked for it or just because we're not looking for the right thing. Um, so I think I think that's possible. That's possible too. So uh, yeah, I'm not as familiar with sort of that literature to know. Um, one, one interesting thing that we have found though is um, play. So play is really easy to recognize. I don't know if you've, if you've had that experience. So if you were walking along the street, you could quickly easily tell who is sort of engaging in a playful manner and who is really just trying to get something done. What do you um, mean by that? Yeah, so um, imagine that you were uh, trying to catch a ball, right? And that was all you were supposed to do. You know, I'm going to pay you $10 if you can catch the ball and I'm going to throw it really far. Well, the right thing to do would be to just run straight for it. Um, But then think about all the games that we've developed in in human history. We've got basketball in which you're not supposed to just catch a ball. You have to throw it exactly into this, you know, this hoop. And the further you are from when you threw it, the more points you get. Or even baseball, when you not only have to get a ball to a particular location, you have to go around in this sort of diamond formation before you get there. Um, And so it seems like one feature of the kinds of games that we have are that they set up these really arbitrary barriers that you have to solve or these obstacles that you have to get through um, when, you know, if you really wanted to get a ball, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do those things. Um, and, And that seems to be a really sort of identifying feature of play. Um, 
in one experiment that we've done, uh, so this is a little bit like the stickers experiment, we actually showed children some stories and we showed them uh, two child characters who were asked to do the same thing. So, you know, for instance, we said, hey, these two girls in the story are trying to get sticks for their campfire. And so they walk to this forest and one of the children just starts, you know, bending down and grabbing sticks from the floor. And another child starts jumping up and trying to get sticks that were really high up on a tree. And, and we asked the children, hey, one of these kids are playing and one of them is, you know, just doing what they're supposed to do. Who do you think is playing? And they, these children unanimously said, well, obviously it's a girl who's jumping up and trying to get those hard to reach sticks that's playing. And, and we had some other stories that were not about sticks, but maybe, you know, uh, one that I like is in an elevator. So we had two kids who were trying to ride an elevator to get to the top floor and, and maybe go home. And one of the children just, you know, presses one button and, and gets home. And the other child presses every single button in the elevator. Um, and we ask our participants, hey, who do you think is playing? You know, is it the child who pressed one button or is it the child who pressed all 12 buttons? And they almost unanimously said, well, obviously it's the kid who pressed all the buttons. A lot of them started laughing when they even saw a story. Um, and so in these kinds of examples, it seems like the similarity is that playfulness involves this uh, taking on or performing kind of costly actions that really are quite unnecessary. Um, and it's, it's funny to watch that. And when you watch that, you know that they're playing uh, you know that they're they're joking around and they're not really seriously focusing on that outcome. Yeah, yeah. So that's a very interesting characteristic of play. And I um I'm also curious why why would children or adults even want to engage in these costly behaviors? Um, what are sort of the theories behind that? Yeah. So. That's a really great question, and I think that's a wide-open question that researchers are currently trying to do. So one hypothesis that we have is the idea that in play, we get the chance to not only you know, invent solutions for the problems and situations that we encounter, we not only get to try to figure things out, we also get to invent new problems for ourselves. Uh, we set up this problem of, you know, um, what's the best way I can, uh, you know, reach and retrieve for this really high up stick. Uh, we get this problem of, you know, what's the what's the best way that I can perhaps, you know, get down this slide, but also uh, maybe tiptoe across this this you know playground. Uh, we set up the problem of, you know. What are all the, the rules that we can add to this board game that can, you know, make it fun or make things a little bit more difficult for ourselves? And I think the key thing here is that these problems are, are quite unnecessary and arbitrary. They really have no purpose uh, or at least no practical purpose. And then the question is, well, well, there must be a reason to do these things. If not, we wouldn't be doing them. Um, so one idea is that it's it's great to invent new problems for ourselves because that is how humans kind of as a species get to explore the wide variety of possible things we might do in the world right so not everyone um, is going to sort of um, you know be a doctor or an engineer or a writer or anything like that but across the species if everybody kind of explores in their own little different directions then we might 
just learn a lot of new things that we may not have if everyone was very focused and directed at the same practical goals. Um, it's sort of this idea that uh, sometimes even in science, we might have moonshot goals for ourselves. You know, let's try to get to the moon. Why? We don't really know, but let's try to get there and then we'll find out. And then along the way, you would have invented all kinds of cool technologies that turn out to be very useful for some other purposes. Um, so that's sort of one hypothesis about, about why play is such a fun way to engage in arbitrary and unnecessarily costly behaviors. Um, the, another example is uh, perhaps, you know, just think of all the inventions that might have occurred uh, by accident uh, or, or, you know, we weren't trying to invent those things, but we kind of just chanced upon them because we were trying to do something else. Um, and so the idea is that the more that we can explore as individuals and kind of as a species, you know, the more things we would come up with. And we'd also, along the way, be practicing the skill of formulating questions and problems and trying to figure out the best ways to solve them um, and just kind of learn along the way. So that's sort of um, this idea that we have about play not being just for practice or pleasure or performance but really to help us invent and solve new problems yeah that's really fascinating so play sort of has a place in imagination and in invention yeah exactly um is there anything else that you want to share with our audience or listeners um I think maybe one thing to take away from this is just that, you know, enjoy yourselves and play perhaps um, and and try to have fun no matter what you're doing, because uh, there's a lot of things, a lot of good things that might happen along the way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Junie. Yeah, you're so welcome. And now to our second guest. I'll talk with game designer Holly Gravazio about play during the pandemic and how games can change the way that we see the space that we're in. Thanks so much for joining me today, Holly. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's start off with how did you come to the world of game design? Oh, it was a slightly roundabout route, really. I'd always been, you know, the kid in the playground who would stand on the bench and yell at everyone else and say, no, you're doing that wrong. Let's do this instead and uh, experiment with rules. So I can kind of come up with a narrative that culminates uh, me as a game designer that feels like it makes sense. But actually, it was kind of by accident. I'd just finished doing some postgrad and I'd just moved from Adelaide, which is a city of maybe 1.3 million people, which feels like a country town where you know everyone, to London, which is enormous and, and full of strangers. And about six months after I'd moved there, some friends and I signed up for a thing called Journey to the End of the Night, which was part of some festival of, of play and games. And I didn't really know anything about what to expect but my three friends and I turned up outside this abandoned warehouse in in Wapping I went back and looked at it the other year it's luxury flats now obviously but outside this uh, abandoned warehouse and there were maybe 150 other people there and we were all given this sort of white armband and a, a map of five locations across London really really widespread across London other side of the city and we were told that we had the evening to visit those in order 
and we'd meet someone there who would sign out a bit of paper and that all seemed relatively straightforward and then these doors in the side of the warehouse opened and performers emerged these people with red ribbons around their arms looking very fierce and staring at us and wandering around and one of them was on those big springy like feet that allow you to bound really fast and they were kind of terrifying and and menacing and we were told that they would be chasing us and if they caught us they would take our white ribbon they would give us a red ribbon we would become one of them and we would turn on our former allies and try to chase them down for the rest of the evening and it was just a really really extraordinary evening I don't think I would have signed up for it if I'd known how much running around there was I'm not really a running fan but but my legs ached for days afterwards it was raining but but none of us really cared it was just this really um strange and simultaneously familiarizing way of getting to know the city and understand how different parts of it connected together and and kind of feel at home in the space playing in the space and so it felt safe and home-like and it was a really really extraordinary evening that changed how I felt about the city and at the time I was going well what will I do with my life and thought, oh, maybe games, don't know, give it a go. Started uh, trying to make little experimental physical games and started telling people I was a game designer and eventually people started paying me to do it occasionally and then it became true. Hmm. That sounds like an almost magical experience to have something chasing you inside a city that you know you know in a totally different way. Yeah, yeah. Because I was still quite new to the city, it was the first way I encountered some major parts of the city. The Royal Albert Hall, for example, the first time I ever saw the Royal Albert Hall was while I was peering around a corner, looking at some people at the bus stop wearing their red ribbons and going, oh, I can't go up that way. This huge, um, dramatic building as this setting for me, trying to sneak around a different way to get into the park. I think on reflection, probably the people at the bus stop had just been caught and they were going home. I don't think they were perched there menacingly to intercept anyone who tried to get into the park, but but just their presence there turned that whole area into this kind of um, pretend terrifying arena. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what is it like to play in a space where other people aren't playing? I think it's it feels fairly it feels fairly normal, I think, because that's that's where a lot of play takes place and has taken place for hundreds and thousands of years. That's when when we play in in playgrounds and at school growing up we're not playing in specifically solely dedicated to play places right there's people talking and there's people reading and there's people being grumpy and all of this other stuff going on and play is just one of the ways of of being with and experiencing and experimenting with the, the space it's 
sometimes designing stuff, designing games, knowing that people who aren't playing will be there and will have responses to it is is interesting. And I know people have very different attitudes about that from a from a design perspective. I don't really like it when people are across at me, so I try to to make sure that the worst experience non players have is a kind of exasperated sigh and and moving on. But, you know, there are people who are making play as a more explicit statement about the role of public space and its appropriation for sort of commercial purposes and who are making games as a pushback against that and who quite like it if people get annoyed at them. When I think of games, I often think of board games or maybe video games or computer games, but games are are something that's much larger. Do you mind talking a little bit about the world of games? Like what, what all does that sort of entail? So thinking about play and games and game design can be useful for a whole range of, of different areas. I, I, I include sports and physical games and board games and video games and tiny games that you play inside your head while you sit on the bus all within the same sort of realm of of practice things that are applicable to one area of them might well be applicable to another it's it's not that they're all more or less the same there are important differences between designing for different forms of games. One one big example that comes up quite a lot um, is that with video games, often the, the rules are enforced by the game. If you can do something within the game, then it is permitted. If you're not allowed to go down a particular alley, then the game will just literally not let you move your avatar down into that alley right so it's um exploring this structured world where the the rules are imposed for you whereas with with board games the rules are given to you on paper but then um, enforced and understood and sometimes misunderstood by the players that hmm. that you have to all agree that you'll continue to roll the dice and not just move however many spaces you want to, for example. Um, so that sort of distinction between digital spaces where often the rules are imposed by the the game object itself and and physical leaning games like like sports like board games like playground games where where you have to constantly choose to to summon the game into existence by by following or by adjusting the rules is is one that's interesting to me but it's also not quite as straightforward as it seems because often within video games people will will play their their own sub games where they they follow restrictions that that they um that aren't enforced by the game they'll try to finish a a an exploration game as a vegetarian character where they manage to keep up the energy of their character without any eating any meat, for example, or and setting their own challenges. Or within multiplayer games in particular, people will just hang out and play and build stuff and mess around and talk and, and jump around in the same way that they might in a, a physical playground. 
Mm, yeah. And I think we of- often also think about play as like the domain of children. Um, but I'm curious what you think about um, play in adults. So how how can play be good for adults or life-giving for adults? We do societally often tend to think of, of play as something that's aimed mainly at children. And if I'm running a, an event, a games event, that is not for children, I tend to have to be quite clear and, and specific about that. And even then probably sometimes get uh, some children turning up. Or if there's something where it's intended to be for a very very general audience, then adults will tend to step back, sort of ceding the space for play to children, assuming that it is intended for and belongs primarily to them. Um, Which is a shame, I think, because there's, there's nothing about play as a way of thinking or being or responding to or interpreting the world that's intrinsically more suited for for children it's um adults often feel like they need more explicit permission or more of an excuse to to play children will be very happy with um a, a game where it's just a thing where you play they don't necessarily require a win condition, for example, whereas for adults who who kind of need to trick themselves into playing sometimes, having a win condition is extremely useful. It gives them a way to sort of shortcut the, what are you doing that for? And the answer is they're doing it to win. And like, why are they doing it to win? Doesn't really matter. That That's, that's something that's, that they can excuse them to themselves. But I think that's less and less the case. It's less now than it was 10 years ago, for example. Um, I think adults have always played, whether that's, you know, playing board games or not stepping on cracks or doing crosswords on on the train or whatever it might be. But currently, a lot of the ways that adults play are things that are more explicitly labelled as games. And so it's harder to engage in them while thinking that you don't play. Like you can do crosswords while also thinking, oh, oh, I don't really like games. I'm not much of a one for playing. But you can't go to the games section on an app store and like download a new game without thinking, ah, yes, I'm playing a game. (laughs) Oh, sure. That makes sense. I, um, Recall from our exchange of emails that you were doing some writing about play during the pandemic. Would you mind sharing, um, I don't know, some tips of, about your reflections on this and maybe thoughts on how people can play during the pandemic? Sure. So so I'm currently working on a collection called New Rules, which is essentially just a collection of uh, 15 or 20 essays by different people who are interested in, in games and play in different ways about the processes of, of play during the pandemic, usually with some sort of personal connection, how, how it worked for them. So there's people talking about um, sort of family Zoom quiz that, that became a thing in in first lockdown, for example, where I think the function of the game was kind of to give people a, a focal point to prevent the, the calls from feeling awkward and boring, but to give everything 
everyone a, a thing to to do while they were spending family time together or or that month when everyone was was doing jigsaws which uh this kind of large but achievable task where you're you're fitting things together and having repeated moments you know at 2000 moments if you've got a 2000 piece puzzle of going ah yes this is right and <laughs> and having that sort of momentary satisfaction um things like play as a a way of talking to to neighbors or looking at the the world around you so for example um there's an essay in the collection by Pima Monahan about looking out of the window at wood pigeons playing in the garden and about that being a way of of still feeling part of the world and and accessing play even when she didn't particularly feel like it herself or um a piece by Catherine Bennett around street quizzes in Paris where the, the odds on one side of a street would play against the evens on another side of a street. Someone would get a microphone and call out questions and it would be a, a communal... Oh, like a trivia yeah, game. Yeah, um, big trivia game, but for a street, it's sort of communal way of being together, sort of people leaning out of their windows or sitting on their balconies when it was no longer possible for people to be together in a more sort of casual and informal way you don't have the nodding to people as you walk along the streets you don't have the the sort of chats outside the local shops so instead having this sort of grander structure to it was an an alternative way of of people being near each other and being attentive to each other it's there's a lot of different um, ways that people have played and used play during the pandemic, I think. Often, you know, just a thing that passes the time, right? Or playing um, exploratory video games in the outside world as a an alternative to actually being able to go out in there and, and do that. Or playing games on your phone is already, mm-hmm. while commuting, this sort of thing that creates this kind of um, little protective bubble around you, right? You direct your attention down at the phone and there's this almost um, obviously not literally protective in any way, unfortunately, but this sort of enclosedness. You don't have to... Um, pay attention to the person on the next seat over from you. You don't have to engage with the thing. You're you're looking at the phone, the phone is looking at you and you're you're hunched over it and it's this kind of um like hiding under a table, right? With the tablecloth on it. You're doing that but but just with the the magic of your concentration. And so at a time when commuting is like way, way more stressful than it normally would be, people using that sort of concentrated attention as a way of not constantly feeling consciously unsafe during a commute. Uh, I think play in games are a part of everyone, not a part of everyone's life. Playing games are a part of a lot of people's lives, regardless of whether there's a pandemic on or not. And so 
this year there have been different places and spaces and corners and ways of interaction that that games have found a home to specifically address the the nature of being in a pandemic world yeah those are some interesting examples i especially like the one that you shared about the street <laughs> back and forth yeah. i think i like that structured way of getting to interact with your neighbors again and yeah that's yeah yeah and i didn't i didn't realize that it was a big thing in paris for a while for a few weeks that there was um a an actor who ran a quiz with his local street and then videos of that went around and and it caught on but just as a city for a while paris was very into these street quizzes um, you get um people who were are very into bouldering coming up with ways to to continue to have some of the experiences of that while in lockdown when they are not allowed to go bouldering anywhere. I was talking to a um, friend of mine, Li Shenglun, who was talking about the the details of how he and his bouldering friends had had continued to kind of be able to boulder um, and things like like prop yourself up in a door frame and then change the sweater that you're wearing without touching the ground. These these tiny tasks that maintain and explore some of the skills that the bouldering enthusiasts have and and are feeling the lack of being able to um, take out. Yeah, they're like ways to enlarge their mm. worlds even while they're stuck yeah. at home. Thanks so much for joining me and thanks for sharing about about games and how people play. If you'd like to learn more about my guests, Janine Chu and Holly Gramazio, we've linked to their websites at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. You can also find our Patreon page where you can support our podcasting crew by donating. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 